Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is Mr. Zachary Wood. He's a Robert L. Bartley Fellow at the Wall Street Journal and a class of 2018 graduate of Williams College, where he served as president of Uncomfortable Learning a student group that sparked national controversy for inviting provocative speakers to campus. His recent work appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, Nation, Weekly Standard, Times Higher Education, and Inside Higher Ed, a Washington, D.C. native that currently resides in New York City. Mr. Wood, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, John. This book, Uncensored, is an insightful piece that, that I think would help anybody better understand what it's like at the intersection of black and white America and the way you lived your life. Uh, the thing that struck me most is that you had such insights at such an early age. To what do you attribute that? You know, I would say that my mom played a very important role in in, in a lot of my formative experiences early on uh, involved my relationship with my mother. That was how I cultivated a greater sense of empathy early on. It was she placed high value on my education, on learning, mm-hmm. and on you know, helping me see the value of knowledge. And so she mm-hmm. directed my attention to many of the things that I now focus on. And we, we, we can talk about the difficulties of that relationship, too, but let's mention Lola and Papa, because uh, books were a refuge for you from a very early age. They were, absolutely. My grandmother taught me. So my grandmother was a teacher in Detroit Public Schools for 36 years. And when I was three years old, she taught me to read. And uh, I love reading now, but at three years old, I had to, she had to incentivize the process a little bit. So she mm-hmm. would say that, I'll, you know, I'll take you to the mall or, or we'll, you know, I'll take you to the park and if you work with me an hour a day. And so I worked with her an hour a day. And I, I quickly uh, came to love reading and was, you know, reading everything I could find. And... um and since then, that was really where my love of learning kind of evolved from. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a couple of the books that influenced you very early, and I, I do, I do think you must have had an eidetic memory because you it was such a uh, uh, you remembered so much, and all of your teachers remarked about how much you remembered from your reading. Uh, but the books that uh, the Giving Tree and the biography of Albert Einstein uh, yeah. fascinated you very early on, right? Yes, definitely. The Giving Tree mm-hmm. was one of the first books I read, and I read it. I cannot tell you how many times I read that book, at least 50 times. Uh, <laughs> and then the autobiography of Albert Einstein, you know, I was just so fascinated by him as a figure. Not just you know his work as a scientist was interesting and trying to understand that, but really it was the role he also played as an advocate of of various issues and the philosophical stances he took, you know, he was a very interesting person. And while he's known as, you know, perhaps the greatest scientist of all time, the greatest scientific mind of all time, he was a very interesting person who just loved knowledge and who really cared about humanity. And so that, mm-hmm. that really intrigued me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's also uh, a number of, of, volumes of black historical figures that, that were important, yeah. uh, Garrett Morgan and George Washington exactly. Carver and Frederick yeah. Douglass and Rosa Parks and so on. Um, but the conversation you had with your papa uh, when you were reading about Frederick Douglass and asking why slaves weren't allowed to read, the, the thing that your papa, papa said that was so important was the two worst things you can be in this world are black and poor. Exactly. Uh, 
how did that uh, carry through in your life? You know, when he said that, it's one of those things that I will always remember. I can remember his face. I can remember his expression. I can remember how he gestured with his hands. I can remember the look in his eyes. And when he first said it, I kind of... I kind of had to pause for a second and think, and I, and I kind of said it over again to myself in my head. And since then, you know, as I've moved through my life, and now being, being a young adult, it is clear to me in many ways on a day-to-day basis how there really is a kernel of truth in what he said. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the lessons that your mother taught you uh, came with some level of difficulty because of mental challenges that she had or, or mental illness that she had that was sometimes thought of as bipolar disorder and later diagnosed a little bit differently than that, right? Yep. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Talk about that a little bit, about how she uh, demanded full attention and sometimes right. uh, spoke in abusive terms to you and threatened the things that were frightening to you. She was very erratic. Her behavior fluctuated drastically, unpredictably. I never knew what to expect with my mom. I would wake up in the morning and I'd have to read the cues, I'd have to read the signs, I'd have to pay attention to her her body language, how she was acting, and quickly try to tell, okay, is today going to be a good day or a bad day? Is today going to be a day where she wants to go see three movies and go to the arcade and go go go-kart racing? Or is today going to be one of those days where she lays in bed all day crying and asking me repeatedly if I hate her, if I love her, if her family cares about her? Or is this going to be one of those days where she yells at me as loudly, as forcefully as she can for hours on end? That was something I had to learn how to decipher so that I could prepare myself for it because, you know, it would change and there was no way to know. So it made me very attentive. I learned to really pay attention to people. I had to always make this extra effort to understand her, to be patient with her. And I think it has played a a very significant role in my ability now to step outside of my comfort zone and really do things, especially with respect to uncomfortable learning and difficult conversations that people just find uh, to be too challenging. She was wily in, in, in a way in that uh, she was uh, institutionalized sometimes and, and given medication that would help her uh, be more um, she was. moderate, she was, she um, was, but she knew how to uh, play the game in front of others, and, and you, yeah. you picked up on that. Yes, my mom was um, very good with people. She had, she was excellent at building rapport. She knew whomever she talked to, if she desired to do so, she knew exactly what to say. She knew exactly how to say it. Uh, She knew how to move conversations along. She knew what people wanted to hear. And so she could always flip that switch. I can remember times where she would be in the middle of an outburst just yelling at me. It would be an hour into this yelling. And I'm sitting there trying not to cry. This is when I'm five, six years old. And then the phone rings. And when she picks up the phone, her voice sounds incredibly pleasant, very professional, very polite, genuine. You know, and it was just, it was, I, I, 
it was something to see. Her ability mm-hmm. to just to do that at the drop of a hat. And so you had that great role model, and then uh, about fourth grade, I think it was, you were getting great grades, but your teacher wrote on your report card that you were disrupting the class by asking so many questions, and that infuriated your mom so much that she saw to it that you got into a, a, a white suburban school, Rose Point Academy, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. She wanted to make sure that I was receiving a great education, and she did not like the idea that my teachers saw my uh, questions and my outside reading as as a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so when you uh, uh, began living in this world, uh, white suburban kids right. who uh, were middle class and above, how, how, do you, how would you describe your survival techniques? So one thing was, one thing that was challenging was that there were all kinds of preconceived notions that they had about uh, about African Americans, about minorities, about people who lived in communities like the one I came from. And so my, you know, what I had to do was pay attention. You know, my mom told me on the drive there, make sure that you're patient. Make sure that you're extremely well-mannered. Make sure that you're very alert. Nothing can be lost on you. Nothing can slip past you. You have to observe and observe closely. You have to listen to what people are saying, and you have to remember. You have to show them that you take your studies seriously, that you take yourself seriously, and that you are at this school to excel, to achieve, and to make the most of your education, and to demonstrate that you deserve to be there just as much as any of your peers do. So my mom saying all of this to me on the ride there on the first day and reiterating it uh, in various ways on a daily basis really did, it made me really focus. It motivated me. It gave me a sense of how I could thrive in this environment, what kinds of things I needed to do in order to, to make sure that I would be able to get out of my education what she hoped I would. Interesting, some of the insights that came from your mom. Uh, she told you, look, you're a black man, and she explained the fear associated with black masculinity and being self-assertive. Exactly. She she explained that that was you know, one key thing she said is uh, be very mindful of appearing angry. You can be assertive. You can be confident. You know, th- that can be good. But you want to make sure that you avoid showing uncontrolled anger, that you avoid showing anger at perceived slights, at things, because that will never serve you well. Mm-hmm. Um, what added to your experience greatly, I think, was moving to Roper in, in Birmingham yes. at the end of seventh grade, because it was a different environment even than, than you were used to in, in GPA. Definitely. Roper was... Uh, significant for many reasons. There were phenomenal educators at Roper. It was really a caring and a challenging and a thoughtful community, and I'm really so thankful uh, to everyone there for all that they contributed uh, to my growth and development as a as a student and just as a person. I would say another thing about Roper that was really uh, significant for me was the way diversity looked at Roper. 
I mean, you saw students from backgrounds like mine with interests and passions that I myself would have never expected them to have. Uh, you know, you saw uh, white students from affluent backgrounds who cared and who did more to address issues of race and class than myself and many other minority students. And everyone at Roper was so open to, to learning and to forging relationships with people who saw things differently. It really was a very unique place, and that's one of the things that's always stood out to me about my time there. Mm-hmm. Um, the the first experience you had sitting in a car with a girl was kind of uh, uh, difficult. E- yes, yes, exactly. It was. Mm-hmm. And, 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 uh, and she was a she was of a different race, no? Uh, which you're referring to the is this in high school? Yes. 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 She was so she was a mixed race. Uh huh. And, uh, yeah, she was a mixed so, race. Many people thought that she was African-American, but she was a mixed race. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, when some of the people at school became aware that how you were being treated looked an awful lot like abuse, talk about that scenario a little bit. So they encouraged me to consider the option of not living with my mom anymore. And I was, you know, they, they labeled the, the behavior uh, and the experiences I had with her as abuse. And that was uncomfortable for me. I didn't like the word. I didn't want in any way to see myself as a victim. I didn't think I was a victim, even though um, you know, it was very clear to me what I had endured. And so I struggled with that. It was difficult for me to talk about it it was difficult for me to to bring it up with people because my mom instilled fear that if I ever told anyone anything about the some of the experiences uh, that we had at home, some of the things she'd said, some of the things she'd done, that there would be severe consequences. And given that she you know, she was mentally ill and unstable at times. I didn't want to know what those consequences were going to be. So when I started talking to the school psychologist, it was really a big step for me personally in kind of coming mm-hmm. to terms with my own personal history and with, you know, a relationship that's really fundamental for, for all of us, your relationship with your mother. Yeah, exactly. And I know that when they first started asking you, you denied it. They asked you specifically about things you had confided. Has your mother ever threatened to knock your head through a back window? Has your mother yeah. ever beaten you with an instrument? Has your mother ever right. spoken to you about sex in an inappropriate way? And you denied it all at one point. Exactly. But you also, and we need to note that at some point early in your life, your father divorced your mother and lived in a different city. Uh, and she was, she had taken up with a boyfriend named Kevin, and sometimes that became a factor in uh, her shaming of you. And you tried to talk to your dad and said you wanted to go live with him when all of this came up. And even though he was uh, worked hard and sometimes at three jobs, did his best to support you through the, uh, because he believed the education was good for you too. Um, it wasn't an easy life when you first moved to D.C. with him and his grand and your grandmother. It was one of the one of the greatest challenges I faced was was mm-hmm. when I when I left Detroit and moved 
to D.C. I was, you know, going from a home in which my my mom was not stable to a home in which my dad was stable, but not financially. Mm-hmm. I was moving into a house with two bedrooms and five people, a house that was in disrepair in a community that was underprivileged and under-resourced, in which there was a library that only had, for my first two years there, roughly 100 books with only three computers that were accessible. I mean, there were so many challenges. My dad didn't have a car at the time, so everywhere we went, we had to go on public transportation. I didn't have friends in the neighborhood, in the community, because I was new there. And when I got there, most of the youth in my neighborhood were involved in things that I didn't want to be involved in. And so I was I was very isolated, I was very alone. At the same time, I wanted to just start over, start fresh. I wanted to do more, I wanted to be better. I wanted to go back to, to school and, and take things up a notch. And I decided to just focus on learning and focus on making the most of every intellectual and educational experience I had. Mm-hmm. And you had read a lot of books about the issues that PDC faced in that area. I mean, at one time it was a middle-class neighborhood, but it, had, it sort of deteriorated, even though there were some educated folks, like Brown, who was a very supportive of you, a neighbor. Um, but you spent a lot of time discussing uh, race matters, Cornell, Cornell West's book, and the concept yes. of black nihilism. Yes. That, that was a, an impactful thing, it looks like. Definitely. I um, So I, I encountered Cornell West's work and, you know, the way in which he discussed how in, in poor African-American communities there can be a sense of lovelessness, a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of hopelessness, given accumulated disadvantages, given the lack of resources, given the ways in which those communities are kind of socially neglected. And it really resonated with my experience, and it seemed like he understood the nuances of race uh, in a way that I had not seen in many other scholars that I read. So it really stuck out to me, and I ended up reading all of his other books and really becoming, uh, he became someone that I greatly admired. Mm-hmm. There, there's several poignant things in this book that, that really struck me and made me think. Um, but one of them was the thing that most people who have never lived in poverty don't understand is how expensive it is to be poor. Right. Yes. It is. I mean, when you don't have the money for things you need, credit card interest, you're deferring things, you're taking out loans, right? And these are all things you have to pay back when you already don't have enough. And so it's, I mean, it's just adding and adding and adding and adding and adding. And that's one thing that I think people really don't understand until, you know, you've had that experience. Um, struggling as they did, uh, you, you got the support you needed to get into a private school, um, but traveling to and from on the bus was a, a adventure from time to time. It was a, that's a, yeah, that's a, um, that's one way of putting it. It was certainly an adventure. Uh, there were some formative experiences there as well. Um, mm-hmm. and it was something I had to be prepared for that commute every day. I had to know that any number of things could happen, and I had to be prepared to respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. And, and to talk about some of those things, there were sometimes some people that made you give up your seat, um, yeah. Yeah. that asked you for money. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, there were there were people I had, you know, more confrontational encounters where I was sitting on the bus and I'd be reading a book for school or just something that I was reading on my own. And someone would come onto the bus and say, you know, you got to get, you know, you got to move. I'm sitting there. They wouldn't say it that way, but they'd say, you got to move. I'm sitting there. And, mm-hmm. you know, my first feeling is fear. I'm like, okay. Uh, this person is being very aggressive, so what am I going to do? Well, I have to ride this bus every day. And there are a number of people who ride the bus regularly in my community as well. And there was this this understanding that if I showed fear, if I looked like I was afraid, this might keep happening. If I looked like I didn't know how to handle the situation, this might keep happening, and other things like this might uh, happen as well. And so I didn't want to seem afraid, yet at the same time, I certainly did not want to cause a problem with this guy. So, you know, I try to diffuse the situation by saying, you know, know, the seat is yours without, you know, trying not to show weakness, trying not to show that I'm as uncomfortable as I really am. It was a lot to to adapt to, uh, to get used to, and um, it really wasn't until I'd, I'd been taking the bus for about a year that I felt like I was kind of ready for the range of things that could happen. Mm-hmm. Talk about your time at Bullis, the the, the, the yeah. Virginia school that you went to. I was, there were a number of phenomenal educators at Bullis as well. Bullis was more like Gross Point than Roper. There mm-hmm. were a number of students whose parents, you know, owned restaurant chains or owned, you know, ate McDonald's in a particular city or owned parts of sports franchises and things like that. And it was really at Bullis that I developed a deeper interest in writing, actually. Yeah, I'd always liked writing. I'd always loved reading and I'd always liked writing. But it was at Bullis that I, you know, a poet named Reginald Dwayne Betts visited, and I write about that in the book. And uh, my main focus became, really, once I got there, was upon improving my writing, my ability to articulate my thoughts uh, with pen and paper. And um, that actually was a, a big aspect of my intellectual development as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you also had a number of friends who had incredible wealth that you got to hang out with and learn from, yeah, uh, which which shaped your views about how you could survive in a, in a white patriarchal society. Yeah, I had a, I had a number of friends who, and I would go over their homes on the weekends, and the conversations, you know, when I'd have dinner, and they would want me to impersonate certain things. It was very, those experiences sometimes were a little surreal, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it it taught me a lot. It was kind of like I had an insider's view uh, because I no longer was speculating about what my friends talked about at the dinner table, and I was no longer just asking them to tell me. I was actually there. I was seeing this, and it was different from GPA in that my peers were older now, more aware of how the world works, more you know, standing a bit more firmly in their beliefs, right? And so it was interesting to see the kinds of conversations they had when the news was on. Um, And I can remember a few times them telling me to impersonate people on the bus who um, had certain mannerisms 
that they thought were, were very funny. And I talk about in the book the kind of the difficulty there, knowing, you know, I don't want to just embody this stereotype for their entertainment, yet at the same time, this is what they want me to do. I'm sitting at their table, and I can just read on their faces that if I don't do this, they're going to be just a little less happy to have me here. Things like that were uncomfortable, and it, was a, it involved a kind of, uh, you know, ad-lib negotiation in those circumstances of, like, how am I going to handle this, you know, and do what I think is right, but at the same time make sure everyone is, is happy, you know, because I wanted people to like me. Those friendships mattered, and I cared so much about the contribution I was making to the community, and I, it was very important to me that I earn the respect of my peers. And so, I, you know, I had to... It was tough figuring all of that out. I think about some of the, the conversations you had with folks at the dinner table in, in those kinds of homes, those palatial estates that they lived in. Um, and, but you got to talk about uh, electoral politics and um, oh, yeah. social scientific theories. Uh, but when uh, well, whose dad was it? Um, one, one of the fathers was riding off Cornell West, uh, and you began uh, to debate dad. them. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Todd's yeah, dad. Todd. Todd's dad was writing off Cornell West as just another professor who studies race. And, yeah, and, I, and uh, I had a number of debates with Todd. Todd was brilliant, extremely brilliant. Uh, but it was clear that his political views uh, then came uh, from the things he heard his dad saying. And so we started, you know, Todd was very competitive. We were both competitive. He's one of the perhaps maybe the most competitive peer I've ever had. And so he did not like the idea that I had, you know, read these things about race that he wasn't familiar with. And so he actually came around to saying things like, okay, so tell me more about this. Or like, tell me what I can look at to read, you know, to, to what can I read on this so that I have a better understanding so that I can, so that I can keep up and we can keep arguing. And so he knew that I uh, admired Cornell West and uh, within a couple of weeks he actually went and, and bought Cornell West's book, Race Matters. That's great. I think I think the thing that strikes me uh, as I get into the second half of the book, when, when I was reading this last week, uh, is that debate became a way of recognizing that you can look at both sides of an argument, even the side you disagree with. Exactly. Exactly. It's a way and, of and building an understanding, better understanding of your opponent, and further developing your ability to articulate what you think. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I became aware of, and you know, I grew up in, in white southern <laughs> in the United States, right. and we're we're swimming in racism without even knowing, or without even being aware of it. Uh, the racism and sexism are stacked against black people, and always have been. Yes, it's um, it's. I think you know we're at a, a point in this country where we can have a very nuanced conversation about race. There are many ambiguities. There are many subtleties. There are still very overt forms of racism that are problematic, and we see that. But it's it's important to pick up, too, on the things that – the undercurrents, things like microaggressions, slights, assumptions that are made, and how – honestly, how that puts this added pressure, this added weight on African Americans, on minorities, because – they know that certain things are assumed about them when they walk into the room, and so they're constantly, you know, they have to be aware of it. You know, if, if they're applying for a job, they have to be aware of it. 
If they're, you know, interviewing for college, they have to be aware of it. If they're filling out an application, they have to be aware of it. Oh man, is the, you know, is is the sound of my name? Is my name going to make them look twice at my application? Is mm-hmm. my background going to make them assume certain things about me? I mean, there's just so many things that are going on in your head. This like added, you know, uh, pressure, and it, it really takes up a lot of your bandwidth. You you made a a, a big mistake uh, late in your high school career, yeah. helping to help some of your friends uh, uh, in a way that you thought would be useful to them by writing a letter uh, for them to get into a certain college in the name of someone else. Exactly, it was the worst mistake I've made in my life, and it's you know that one thing people say that one thing you wish you could go back and do over again that is certainly it for me because I'd worked so hard at Bullis to build the relationships that I developed with my peers and professors and all I wanted to do was contribute more to the community and I you know I I didn't want to tell them well no I actually can't deliver on these connections or no I can't actually help or you know once I had mentioned that I that I knew someone, or once I mentioned that you know, I might get help in some way, I wanted to be able to follow through, and it was, you know, it left it it led to me having to to leave and finish at an online high school, and you know it it uh, it it taught me a lot, and it changed the end of my high school experience. But I will say this: it also it motivated me to to try to work even harder to say that, you know what, going forward, I was still going to try to make that difference in the community. I was still going to try to do things for my friends and you know, those around me, but only the things I actually could do, and that I was going to try to to kind of learn from this. And one thing I took from it was that, you know, you have to be resilient. You have to be willing to kind of look at the mistakes you make and assess them and then go forward and and not let them hold you back. And and let's take that lesson forward. It's been a pleasure, Zach. Thank you Thanks. so much for having me. Great conversation. Thank you. Good Books Radio is a production of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley as a service to the community and to public radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. Thanks for listening.